brings joy to your heart is seeing us in relationship with you. And I just pray that uh, that each person here this morning has that with you. And if they don't, that they would be considering the prospects of coming to grips with your claims, Lord, that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the creator God. And that the only way to become complete in this life is through a relationship with you, Father. And I just pray that, uh, that we would be touched with your Holy Spirit and that we would realize the love that we see displayed by you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for our church. I pray for the ministry here. I pray for the pastors and the elders and the Sunday school teachers, the life group leaders, that, that everything that we do would be done in a way to bring glory to you, Father. Give us the strength, give us the power to do this. And Father, I pray for our nation. I pray that as we seem to be going through constant turmoil, that you would be raised up, Father. That somehow through your sovereignty and through your power that our leaders would make decisions that would be good for us and not for their particular agendas. And Father, I pray for our president and our congressmen and our Supreme Court leaders and our governors and state legislators and mayors and city council members that, that they would make good decisions that would be good for us, Father. And I just pray for your hand upon them. And Father, I pray for our service here this morning. I thank you for the songs that we've sang and I just uh, hope that they have been music to your ears. I pray for the message that's to be delivered here from your holy word that you would empower me to speak your words to each person here this morning. And I pray that our ears would be open and most importantly our hearts would be open to receive a very special message, not a message from me, but a message directly through you as we look at your holy word, a word that can bring life and power and peace and love into our hearts. Father, I just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my name is uh, Tom Downing, and Brad uh, asked me to step in for him today. Um, as I understand, he is uh, on his, uh, he and the mission team, they're on their way back, and uh, so uh, if all goes according to plan, Lord willing, he'll be here uh, um, next Sunday, um, back into Romans, or who knows, he may be sharing about their trip in Africa, I don't know, but um, uh, a little bit about myself, um, I'm just one of some 500 people that attend Cornerstone Church, and uh, the one thing that my wife and I do, we host a, a life group that we thoroughly enjoy. Our life group has been going through the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to be speaking from Hebrews chapter 4. And I get to do one thing that I've tried to steer our group away from. There's so much, so much data, so much information within Hebrews, but there, 
so much of that is practical stuff that, that how it could really benefit our Christian walk. But some of it, I mean, there's theologians uh, that have been debating these uh, topics within Hebrews for centuries and have not come to a conclusion on them. And, and I tried to steer our group away from, you know, majoring on those things and, and instead major on the things that we're all in agreement on and things that can have life-changing impact in our lives. So I get to do what um, we weren't able to do, but since this is not a life group, then that's okay. But um, one thing that uh, I wanted to share was an excerpt I took out of, uh, off the Drudge Report this week that popped up on there. And uh, I, I, I think it's accurate. I, I checked with a couple healthcare workers and uh, mental health uh, workers, and they, I mean, we don't know the statistics are exactly correct, but the trends are definitely correct. Um, and this article is called Americans Snapping by the Millions. It's by David Kuplin. He's the uh, managing editor for WND um, uh, News Service. Terrorism, chaos, fear of the future. America is undergoing a fundamental transformation that that much everyone knows. But what few seem to realize about this transformation is that the sheer stress of living in today's America is driving tens of millions to the point of illness, depression, and self-destruction. Consider the following trends. Suicide has surpassed car crashes as a leading cause of injury in America. Fully one-third of the nation's employees suffer chronic debilitating stress, and more than half of all millennials, that's 18 to 33-year-olds, experience a level of stress that keeps them awake at night. Uh, Shocking new research from the Center of Disease Control shows that one in five all high school-age children uh, are diagnosed with ADHD. Um, uh, new research concludes that stress renders people susceptible to serious illness, and a growing number of studies now confirm that chronic stress plays a major role in the progression of cancer, the nation's second biggest killer, the biggest killer of all heart disease, which caused one in four deaths in the United States, is also known to have a huge stress component. Incredibly, 11% of all Americans age 12 and older are currently taking SSRI antidepressants. These highly controversial mood-altering psychiatric drugs with the FDA suicidal warning label and alarming correlation with school shooters. Women are especially prone to depression with a stunning 23% of all American women in their 40s and 50s, almost one in four, now taking antidepressants according to a major... CDC study. Um, add to that the tens of millions of users of all types of psychiatric drugs, including the 6.4 million uh, children between 4 to 17 diagnosed with ADHD. Um, throw in the 28% of American adults with a drinking problem. That's more than 60 million plus the 22 million using illegal drugs. And it goes on with the list of that. But the, you know, if the trends are true, it's, it's, it's quite alarming. And I'm not standing here saying that, um, uh, you know, I have the solution to that. I mean, there's a, a, a number of things driving those statistics, and, and there are a number of solutions to them. But I think one thing, the message that we heard last week from Pastor Chris about the peace that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ and and what I'm going to be sharing this morning, totally unrelated or unknowingly 
neither Chris nor I knew what we were going to be sharing, a rest that only God can give um, can, I think, can go a long ways in, in giving at least comfort to people who are suffering from some of these uh, issues. Um, but more, import more importantly than anything is that the church needs to be aware that there's a real epidemic going on in our culture and we need to figure out some way to either be an asset to this or a solution or, or, or what. And, and again, I'm not here. Um, some of those um, issues that were mentioned, my family has uh, dealt with and suffered from and have very close friends who are in the midst of some of these things. So it's, it's, a, it's an issue that has impacted all of us in some way or another. But as I said, I'm going to be speaking on a rest that only God can give. Uh, St. Augustine um, wrote in the 4th century in his confessions, God, you move us to delight in praising you. You have created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. I believe for most of us here this morning, when you became a, a Christian, you experienced the rest in a magnificent way. I've, I've heard many testimonies over the years, and, and every time it's stirring to me to listen to how people are drawn to Christ. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 5.17 of the creative power of a changed life. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. No better testimony for me of the power of Christ than to see a man or a woman going in one direction and their life changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ and now they're going in a different direction towards Jesus. However, if we are candid, and I speak for myself as well, we will admit that that initial rest, that initial encounter with Jesus has not always continued to describe our relationship with him. There is a difference between uh, the primary experience of rest, coming to Christ, versus continuing to live a life of, of rest as we walk our lives on the stormy seas that engulf each of us on almost a daily basis. I believe our passage is written to Christians, non-Christians, and the person still pondering the claims of Christ. And all these recipients of this letter are all beginning to experience the early stages of persecution. And it is to these endangered hearts that the author focuses and exhorts them on participation in a rest that can only come from God even though we will be looking at, at people and events who lived thousands of years ago, our passage is as contemporary for us today as for, for the original recipients of it. So I'm going to be using Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 11 as my text. So let's read that. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, for we also have had the gospel preached to us 
just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been, has been finished since the creation of the world, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the, in the, in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. There's a lot going on in this passage, and with just a cursory reading of it, I think for many of us it won't make sense. So I want to speak to the three things in the passage individually and then bring it all back together and speak to what the author is saying to us. So there's three distinct themes that are going on in this passage. The first one, the passage refers to some event in the past. So what is that? We've got to find out what that is. It's also speaking to the good news or the, to the gospel to different groups of people separated by thousands of years. Is it, is it the same good news and gospel or is it different? And thirdly, what is the rest that this passage is referring to? What is this rest? So number one, the event that the author is referring to is it's, it's referring to the first attempt that the Israelites, Israelites did to try to enter into the promised land. And we're going to turn to Numbers 13, some obscure book called Numbers, and look at that. Really, it's a, a, a wonderful book that records the history of the Israelites going into the, the, the promised land and, of course, a lot of other stuff as well. But um, Numbers 13, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 27 through 28, first of all. They, okay, let me give you some background history here. The Israelites had been waiting to go into the promised land for centuries. And they were in captivity. They were captured by uh, captivity to the Egyptians. And then this is when, you know, the Charleston Heston movie where, you know, Moses goes and, and set my people free and, and all the stuff that goes along with that. Uh, Pharaoh, of course, he didn't want to release these guys that, you know, they, they, they pretty cheap labor for him. And so God and Moses had to apply some pressure on Pharaoh to, to make this happen. And there were the, the plagues, and, and, uh, and then the firstborn of every Egyptian family was killed. And, um, and, and, and finally, Pharaoh relented to let the, the Israelites leave Egypt. And then Pharaoh changed his mind, and no, I want these guys back. And so he pursues them. God protects them from the rear. And finally, God opens up the Red Sea where they uh, go across the Red Sea in safety to the other side. And Pharaoh decides, well, hey, if these guys can make it across, so can we. And so they follow them. And, um, 
and the waters uh, collapse in on the, on the Egyptians and they're all killed. And, and so Moses and some million plus Israelites are now heading to the promised land going through the wilderness. And they've just come up to the edge of the Jordan River and Moses has decided, well, we're going to send in 12 spies, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and we're going to check out the land and, you know, they're going to be in there checking it out for 40 days, and they're going to come back with this report. So in Numbers 13, verse 27, is the, is the first report back from, from, these, from these 12 individuals that went to check out the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. That was one of the original promises of the promised land, that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And if, you, if we had more time, we would have read earlier that they went and plucked some clusters of grapes. And these clusters of grapes were so large that they had to hang them from poles that were strung between two grown men. And they hauled these, this cluster of grapes back as an example of the abundance of the, of the promised land. But now, verse 28, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Okay, let's move on to verse 30. So the people began to grumble. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they are spread, uh, and 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 the and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are great size. We saw the the Nephilims there, the descendants of Anak. We seemed like grasshoppers in their own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So here, the promise of the promised land was was correct and accurate. But there's also some other forces going on there that these people didn't like to have anything to do with. Okay, chapter 14. We're going to move to verse uh, 20. So the people are grumbling. The people don't want to go in there. And the decision is basically made, no, we're not going to go. We're not going to cross the Jordan River. And it infuriates God. And God wants to wipe these people out. Moses, you know, um, um, uh, intervenes in their behalf. And finally, the Lord said in verse 20, I have forgiven them as you asked. But there's going to be consequences for their disobedience. And verse 30 is that here are the consequences of of the Israelites refusing to go into the promised land. Not one of you will enter the land, I swore with uplifted hand, to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua. Verse 31, as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in the desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. So that generation basically was going to be left to, to wander in the wilderness until they all died off and then their original offspring we're going to be, then be allowed to, to go into the promised land. So that's, that's the event that the author in Hebrews 4 is referring to. So what's this, the second thing is, what's, what's this gospel? Most of us know that the gospel as salvation through Jesus. That's what we in our culture are used to. 
but in Moses' day is reference to the gospel about Jesus or did it refer about something else? The term gospel means, you know, good news or something that is true. The good news referred to here was the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey for the nation of Israel that God had been promising to the Israelites since Abraham. Entering into the promised land by a devout Jew was a type of representation of salvation for them. But for the recipients of Hebrews, to the people that the book of Hebrews was written to, the gospel was believe in Jesus, the Messiah, and go to heaven. So there's two different references here to the gospel. One to the ancient Israelites, it was to make it into the promised land. And for the people in the book of Hebrews, it's salvation through Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the rest that they refer to here in these uh, 11 verses of Hebrews 4. The author and the recipients of Hebrews are steeped in the knowledge of the Old Testament. So things that they just take for granted are totally lost on us. So let's look at verses 3 through 5 of Hebrews 4. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter into my rest. They shall never enter my rest is a quote from Psalms, and, and it's there, it's not necessarily to stress the issue if they're ever going to go into rest or not, but it's to stress, it's to stress from the author who is referring to the fact that this is God's rest. It is the rest that God himself enjoys. What this means is when we are given rest by God, it is not just some sort of relaxation of tensions, but again, it's the rest that God himself enjoys, his personal rest that he shares with us. For example, let's... um, compare a rest that maybe I could offer you. If you said, hey, Tom, I'm really feeling overwhelmed. You know, can I hang out with you for a while? You know, I could say, well, sure, come on over. We could sit out on my deck and um, you know, maybe go, go for a drive or, you know, couldn't do that much. I, I wouldn't know what to do. Uh, he said, well, I, I want to go somewhere. He said, I like Disneyland. I said, okay, well, let's go to Disneyland. But, you know, I'd probably have to say, well, you know, you're going to have to pay your way there. And being, you know, last-minute planners, you know, we'd be in the back row in the middle seat. And once we got to Disneyland, well, it would be the huge line. And, and of course, you're going to have to pay your way into Disneyland. I'm not going to pay for it. And, and then we have to wait in line for each one of the, of the rides. But now compare this, compare the rest I have to offer someone like yourself to the rest that, say, President Obama could offer to someone. If President Obama was... Um, in uh, uh, willing to share part of his rest with you. You would be invited to the White House. You would basically be offered anything you pretty much wanted to eat. If you wanted to go play a few games of bowling, we'd go down in the basement and do some bowling. If we wanted to go swimming, we could go swimming in the Olympic-sized pool that's on the premises. Uh, If you're into basketball, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't mind calling some of his NBA 
uh, uh, friends that come over and, uh, and participate in a game of basketball, and, and these guys are, uh, uh, are well aware that they got to kind of, you know, dumb down their game, and, you know, so you'd be right there, you know, um, you know participating with them. And then if you wanted to go to Disneyland, it would be, well, here, I'll get the helicopter, get in the helicopter, go to Andrews Air Force Base and hop on Air Force One. And, you know, I'd have a bedroom there if I wanted or any kind of seating, any kind of food I wanted. So, so the, and, and then once we got to Disneyland, you know, no lines, no lines at the different rides or whatever. So, so the rest that someone like President Obama could offer you versus what I could offer you is drastically differently. And I can only imagine the scope and the magnitude of the rest that the Creator God of Heaven can offer to each one of us. And God through this passage, and what we're trying to figure out is what is this rest that God is offering to, 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 to his followers? So when did God's rest begin, and when does it end? And to answer that, we need to go back to the account of creation in Genesis 1. Turn to Genesis 1. I don't think we have a slide for that, but it's a pretty, pretty familiar passage. Genesis 1, verse 31 it says, God saw all that he had made and was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that what he had done. If you were to read through each one of the seven-day accounts, it would read very similar to the one on the sixth day, except for a different change in what, what um, he was creating at that time. But each of the days ends with the phrase, and I don't know if you caught it or not, it ended with a very interesting f- phrase repeated for each of the six days that you won't see for the seventh day. And was it just an accident that the author of Genesis forgot to add the phrase. The phrase was, there was morning and there was evening. That is shown for each of the first six days. And on the seventh day, there's no mention of it. What does this mean? What this means that there is no morning or evening mentioned for the seventh day, as there was for the first six days. And this means that the seventh day... God's Sabbath still continues, and it does not end. God's rest began with the completion of the universe and continues on and on, and thus is available to all of his children who trust in Christ. Did God need this eternal rest because he was tired mentally or physically from all the work of creation? No, not at all. It simply means that he ceased creating and then was sitting back and just being satisfied with what he had created. How refreshing, how delightful it must have been for God as he reviewed his his creation. The pristine blue sky sparkling with the blue diamond stars. A brilliant blazing sun shining white on the sandy beaches surrounded by colorful flowers, stately trees and the animals and the birds and the fish all cavorting throughout his creation. And these animals experience the creation without any fear of danger. 
and the most important of all his creation was a time fellowshipping with his most important and most loved creation of all, the man Adam and his wife Eve. What a delight, what a stupendous creation it must have been for God to rest in and for Adam and Eve to be there with him also enjoying that, this rest. Genesis 2, um, and I, we don't have time to get into it, but is an account of this idyllic life that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God until one thing happened. One thing happened that ended that. They fell, they disobeyed, sin entered to the world, and man ended the rest that he was enjoying with God. I also believe another thing happened at that moment, even in the midst of God's eternal rest, that God began to work. You know what the work of God is from that point right up to this very moment? The work that God is engaged in? God's work is redeeming mankind back to himself. From the very first act of killing the animal, shedding the blood to provide skins to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, which symbolizes the beginning of the sin nature that is now found in every human being. God is at work drawing mankind to himself through Jesus. One more point on this the issue of rest. Finally, the book of Joshua is the record of the next generation that was able to cross the, the, the Jordan River and go into the promised land. That gives us a glimpse, the book of Joshua gives us a glimpse of the rest that they experienced. And in particular, Joshua 24, verses 8 through 13, is a tremendous recap of the book. At first glance, it appears these poor people are engaged in one battle after another, but under closer reading, you see it's God doing this, and they are resting in their relationship with God as he is fighting the battles before them. Let's look at Joshua 24. It's the uh, fourth book of the, of the Bible. No, the fifth book, I'm sorry. Joshua 24, verse 8. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you. Again and again, I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Pizrazites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gerzites, and the Hivites, and the Jezreelites. But I gave them into your hands, and I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land. And this is so important, so it's a wonderful description of the, of the promised land. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Ladies and gentlemen, just as dramatic as this is in their lives, God can work in our lives just as dramatically as well. 
So let's, let's review the three things that we just covered. The, the event that this passage in Hebrews 4 is referring to is the Israelites' attempt to go into the promised land. There's two gospels, two separate gospels, both good news, but the gospel, the good news for the Israelites was the ability to go into the promised land. The gospel for us is trusting and believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. And we've covered the rest. The rest is God's rest, his own very own rest that he personally enjoys. So let's tie all this together. In chapter 4 opens with a warning based on Israel's tragic failure in the wilderness. It's a warning to you and me. It's the warning not to make the mistake that we read in, in Numbers 13 and 14 and a good part of Numbers. Israel had heard the gospel preached to them. That's the message from Joshua and Caleb that the land was theirs for the taking. Joshua and Caleb were so confident they said, we will swallow them up. They knew their God, and they trusted wholeheartedly in him. But Israel's response to the good news was tragically deficient. They failed to step out in faith and take hold of the promised land that God had been promising them for centuries. This is amazing to me because they had a constant witness of God's character and provision. They had the spectacular historical examples of the plagues that God inflicted on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. That they witnessed the, the, the death of the, of the firstborn of each of the Egyptians. The parting of the Red Sea and its closing up over the, the pursuing Egyptians. There were also the constant pillars of cloud at, at day to guide them, the pillar at fire, of fire at night to keep them warm. There was the daily provisions of the manna to fed them out in the wilderness. But now faced with the challenge of entering the promised land, the land that they had been looking for for centuries, they simply did not trust in God. Rather, they believed in what they saw and their circumstances rather than in the God and so failed to enter their rest. Most of these people were probably believers. They believed in God, but only two really trusted God and found rest in him. Is their situation much different than us? How many times have, have you, because I know how many times I have, have failed to follow God because the circumstances and the issues surrounding me seemed impossible? I knew God wanted something for me. I knew, knew God wanted me to do something, but the circumstances seemed unbearable. We need to learn to trust in God. We must keep this subtle distinction between belief and trust clear if we are to understand what kind of faith is necessary to have rest in this life. The faith described in, in verse 2 of, of chapter 4 is the attitude of trusting God wholeheartedly. So applying this to verse 3, where it says, for we who have trusted, trusted wholeheartedly enter that rest. That's how that should read. The faith that pleases God is belief plus trust. Belief is the mental, mental acceptance of a fact as true will simply not bring rest to any soul. Mental acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of the world will not give us rest. 
Trust in him is what gives rest to our souls. Trust is what brings rest. First, trusting Christ's sacrificial death begins our, our rest by giving us rest from the burden of guilt for our sins. And second, trusting his character as an almighty God and a loving Savior gives us rest as we place our burdens on him. The principle is so simple. The more trust, the more rest. The more trust, the more rest. There is not a fretful soul in the world who is trusting. First Peter 5.7 is a tremendous passage for me. It's a very simple passage, but the passage that I go to when I wake up in the middle of the night, I kind of tried to discipline myself that when I wake up in the middle of the night and I, I try to immediately make note of the, of the time, and if I stay awake longer than five or ten minutes, I get up out of bed and I go and I begin praying. You know, I just go through my, my daily prayers, the people I pray for, my adoration of God and everything he's done for me in my life. But sprinkled through that prayer on those fretful nights is 1 Peter 5, 7, where it says, Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. And it's amazing that after I go through this little exercise, I get back into bed, and bang, I'm, I'm back to sleep. Fellow Christians, there is rest for you. It is not beyond your capacity. You can have it if you desire it. Some of the members of the Hebrew church had become so disheartened with their newfound faith that they thought that the rest was no longer available to them. It may have been available to the Israelites in the desert, but not to them. Most of these recipients of this letter of Hebrews were, were born again, but their experience of Christ was not living up to their expectations. Instead of the, the, the initial rest, their lives were experiencing more and more turmoil. They had given up their ancient religion, but were suffering for their new faith. Because of Christ, they had been thrown out of the synagogues, which their whole lives had been centered around. Closely knit family bonds had been broken. Relationships were not only severed, but now endured hostilities within, and, and within the family business had been lost. To many, it seemed that the initial experience of rest was now a cruel delusion. Verses 6 through 10 is addressing this, addressing this attitude that these, is, the, these, the, these Jews were experiencing in, the, in this church of Hebrews. The, arth, the, auth, the author argues that this rest still remains. Let's look at verse 6. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. This verse, verse 6, mentions the only one thing that can prevent you from receiving the rest that God wants to give you. You find it at the end of that passage. It's disobedience, or some versions read, it's distrust. Disobedience will nullify the rest that God desires to give you. Verse 7, let's move on to verse 7. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, 
when a long time later he spoke to David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author is stressing two things in this verse. The rest is contemporary for us today as it was for the original Israelites thousands of years ago, but he's also stressing the urgency of rest. God is speaking to some of you here this morning, and the tug on your heart is the Holy Spirit telling you you need to respond to the call to commit to Jesus. Scripture teaches you can wear out God's call in your life. You can only come to the Father unless the Father draws you. Today is the day to respond to his call. Don't neglect that. Don't put it off another day, another month, another year. Today, and today could be the end of that. Let's go on to verse 8 through 10. For Joshua had given them, them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. In these two verses, God concludes, uh, the author concludes his thoughts that this rest still remains for us today by drawing the similarity between Joshua and Jesus. The name Jesus and Joshua are the same in the Greek. Jesus was named after Joshua. Mary and Joseph, or I think it was the angel, you know, gave him the name for Jesus. It was to be named after Joshua. The Old Testament Jesus, or Joshua, had led his followers to the land of Canaan. But that was not the real rest, but only a type. And that is why the second rest is offered through belief and trust in Jesus, which is also the beginning of, of our eternal rest in heaven. In verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. The author closes this section with a challenge to this church and to each one of us here this morning to strive, or as some translations say, to make every effort to do our utmost to enter that rest. It's not going to happen with you just sitting on your tush watching the world go by. He suggests two things. First, we must do our utmost to focus on this rest. You're not going to be able to explain it. I can't fully explain it. I can't even comprehend what God's rest is. But we're called to focus on that rest. We must strive to comprehend it, that it, it is a divine rest given to us by God Almighty who also considers this rest, the rest he wants us to take, is his own personal rest. There is no room for mental laziness in this. He's warning us to consider this, to take this in. Think with all you have on God's rest, rest as, as described by the Holy Spirit and offered to us in this passage. Second, we must strive to combine the hearing of the good news of the, of the offered rest with genuine faith plus trust. In the midst of our trials, when we are experiencing life's uneven seas, we are called, as was the early church, to believe in the mighty God of the Exodus who, who parted the sea, brought forth water from the rock, and fed his people with manna. Even more, we are to believe in Jesus who gave his life for us, rose from the dead, and ascended to God in mighty power. 
Do we believe that our God is such a God? Do we really believe it with all our heart? We must make every effort to do so. That is the warning of this passage. So as we focus on Jesus, both the perfecter and author of our faith, may we begin to experience both the peace and the rest that can only come from God in abundance. We have a Savior who loves us more than we can imagine. Turn to him, pursue him, ask him for more grace, and hold him to his promise. Well, I am encouraging you here as part of God's promises to each one of us. Hold him to his promise to give you more of his Holy Spirit, to give you more of his peace, to give you more of his rest. I close with a, with a story. I think it's true. I hope it's true. Um, you know, you never know what speakers say. But uh, it was at the turn of the century, and um, it's in uh, Oklahoma. You know, the big ranch there, and, and uh, um, you know, the ranch hands, the family members of the different ranch hands, the owners, and, and so forth. And in the distance, the, the owner of the ranch saw the storm clouds coming. And he could tell from the clouds that it was not a good sign. A, a, a very nasty storm was heading their way. And it, it came upon them much quicker than they thought. And there was, you know, severe winds and rain and lightning. And then hail began to fall. And he was calling, they were calling everyone into the shelters that they had scattered throughout the ranch. And everyone made it to the shelters except for this one woman who near an oak tree and she panicked and she just went to the tree and stayed there rather than going to the, the nearest barn which was about a uh, um, hundred yards away and as the storm grew worse and grew closer uh, the hail that was just originally the size of you know large grapes or whatever began to grow in size to oranges and grapefruits and 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 you know finally was the size of of, um, of, of softball size, and, and these hail, you know, had, um, you know, ice crystals in them, and they were just pouring down, and also surrounding this hailstone was lightning, and they knew that this woman could survive the hailstorm by be staying underneath this, this huge oak tree, but with the lightning, this tree was surely to be hit by lightning, and she could suffer, you know, significant injury by hanging on to this oak tree in the midst of a huge uh, lightning storm. And so one of the hands grabbed a, a, a leather, long leather cowhide coat that was primarily used in the wintertime, and he grabbed that, and he put that over himself, and he ran out to, the, to, the, to, to get this woman. And this woman was panicking, and he, he covered this woman with this coat, and he basically drug her, dragged her, pushed her, to, to the shelter of the barn, and when they got about, you know, 25 yards away from this tree, a lightning bolt hit it and, and, um, and, and, and smashed it, and, and again, she would have surely have been injured or even killed by the, all the, the, the electricity and the, and, the, and the tree coming down. And, and as I said, that these, these hail contained ice crystals, and they were sharp, razor sharp, and as these ice crystals were hit, was hitting this man, he, you know, it was cutting his, the back of his back and hindsight and head and neck uh, significantly, and by the time they got into the, the barn for safety, uh, she was okay, but, you know, he was 
badly wounded by this by this hailstorm and and um, and so they were able to patch him up and and this woman obviously was in tremendous gratitude to this man he he sacrificed himself to save this this lady and as the months went by, their relationship grew, and, and they fell in love, and, and they got married. And the years after that, when people would see this scarred backside of this man, you know, like so many of us, we kind of winced or we were kind of shocked by, by it. But for her, those scars were a sign of beauty to her because it was a physical sign of how much that man loved her and cared for her even without even knowing who she was. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a Savior who is in heaven right now. And when we go to heaven, if we're a believer in Christ, we're going to get our glorified bodies and all the bumps and the pimples and the blemishes that you have on your body, according to scriptures, they're all going to be glorified and, and we're going to have you know, we're, you know, nice, nice bodies to, to start our adventure in heaven with. There's only one person up in heaven who, who doesn't get that, and that's Jesus. He didn't get the, 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 the glorified body in that way because when he came back after receiving his glorified body and he had his encounter with Thomas, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe that you're the Messiah until I see the nail-scarred hand and the, and the, the, the scarring from the, the spear that pierced his side, and he showed it, showed them to him. And he fell down on his hands and knees and worshiped to Christ as his Lord and Savior. Well, we have a Savior who has done far more than just endured some scars on his back as great and as significant as that is. We have a Savior who took upon himself the sins, each of the sins that I have committed, each of the sins that you have committed. He is a Savior who is worthy if nothing else, of our consideration to commit our lives to. And hopefully, if you have not committed your life to him, you would do so. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. So I'll pray for us as the worship team comes up here. Um, Father God, I, uh, I thank you for, for Jesus and the obvious love that you have for us. And Father, it's, um, it's amazing to me as I grappled with this idea of the rest that can only come from you, a rest that is the same rest that you enjoy. I searched for scriptures that would try to paint as good of a picture of this as I could, but there's not that much there. But just the fact that you are the creator God you created me, you created each person here into existence. And I can only imagine how the fulfillment of that rest will be and how, in practical terms, you want to interact in our lives in a very personal and meaningful ways. Father, may we be men and women who pursue that rest, who pursue the peace that can only come from you so that we can be us. Uh, a light on a hill to those who don't know you as Savior. Father, may your blessing be on these people as we go through our day and our week. And thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.